Well, um, there are uh, these extra set of notes here on the platform if you need them uh, for after the service. You can fill in the blanks with your study guides as we move along. Before we jump into the text, I want to um, just talk to you, of, for one, as kind of a follow-up to what Larry just said. I believe that if God wants you as part of the, the trip to Africa, that you shouldn't let money stand in the way. And if you're convinced that, you know, even as you hear his voice talking about this, you think, wow, that's cool, that's something I could do, but then you recoil and say, I don't think I can afford it. Um, Maybe that's the Spirit of God prompting you to make a venture, a step like this. So we've told you way in advance here, so you have plenty of time to, like, write your grandparents, okay? Or grandparents that are here to write your children, I don't know. Um, Make sure that you don't let money become the obstacle for not doing what God has called you to do. So if he's calling you to be part of that missions trip, start thinking about how you can come up with the money to make a trip like that because indeed God can use you to change some lives and it will change your life if you're part of that as well. Um, As a follow-up to that, to talk about money for just a minute. You know that we don't talk about money here at the church very much at all. And as a matter of fact, we don't do a public offering. And there's a very specific reason for that. But because there's so many new people in the church, I wanted to take a minute and explain that and, and where the root of that is from. Um, first of all, if you go back into the ancient times of the temple in, in the Bible, you'll find that giving to the temple was done through what was called trumpets. They were individual stands of made of metal, <clears throat> very ornate, and they stood off to the side, and t- oh, thank you, Michael. And typically, these trumpets that stood off to the side had a, a bell-shaped to top to them and an opening, and people would come to the temple throughout the week or any particular time. It didn't have to be um, just on a particular worship day. And so that's what's happening when you see Jesus looking at the woman who just had a, a penny to put in, and he said, truly, she's given more than all the rest. He was on one side of the temple looking across when she walked up to the trumpets to drop her money in, because when they dropped it in, it would make a tinging sound, and it would sound like a trumpet, and so that's where the name came from. But for myself, I was mentored by a pastor from Indianapolis, Indiana. His name is Dr. Charles Lake, and Dr. Lake planted a church in 1977 down in Indianapolis, and he's mentored me over the years, and I've gone down to visit him quite a bit, but at his particular church, they have these giving boxes like we do in the back. And I asked him about, you know, the, the basis for that. Why not a public offering where you pass the plates like in a traditional church? And he said, for one, it was a measure of the maturity of the congregation that the church, when they put those offering boxes in, took that step of faith to see that people indeed who are mature in the faith know that they have a responsibility to give back to God, but also because it's very personal. We study the word publicly. We worship God publicly. We sing together, but we give privately. It's very much a a relationship between you as an individual and your heavenly Father. And so privately, those worship boxes, those giving boxes are off to the side in the church for you to do that with your Father when God moves your heart, but not under compulsion because that's a scriptural mandate. It's not that you're supposed to give because somebody's telling you to, but rather because God has told you to. So there's the philosophy behind why we have offering boxes or giving boxes that are back there. I'm going to ask you to uh, take a minute and pray with me, specifically because of this text that we're jumping into is one that um, I can get very passionate about. 
And not that I don't get passionate about all of Scripture, but this specific one talking to the church in Pergamum about um, their behavior and their compromise of their witness. And I take this thing very personally, and I'm sure you do as well. And so I'm going to ask God for a a measure of grace because um, I don't want to be casting stones at them lest we fall into the same thing here in our church or other churches that we know that we're friendly with. But it's such a fine line that the church walks in being part of this world, yet being separate from it. And that's what we're going to examine this morning. So would you pray with me that God will give us those spiritual eyes? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of sitting in a warm building like this and the opportunity to look into your word. Um, We're conscious as we move through the book of Revelation that you're showing us things that perhaps we didn't know previously. But if we're being reminded of truths that we have known, uh, we ask, Father, that you help us not to just glance over them, but rather that we would take them to heart and do with these truths what you intend for us to do. But that requires the power of your Spirit, Father. And so I ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to indeed give us sensitive hearts and eyes that see and ears that hear. And then the the responsible nature to follow up with these truths. So God, we ask this in Jesus' name that you would do this. Amen. Do you ever ask yourself, I wonder what Jesus thinks of the church in the United States of America? What if Jesus wrote a letter like he did through John to the people at Smyrna and Pergamum and Ephesus, what if he wrote a letter to the church in the United States? What would he have to say to us? Would he view us with the same eyes that he views these other churches? If you've ever wondered what Jesus thinks about how we're to be separate, yet part of, that's what this letter is about, specifically in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12 through 17. He takes us to a place to help us to see what he thinks about the world and the church and the way the church bleeds over and can find themselves compromising. As a matter of fact, I have to ask this question, how separate are we as believers to be from worldly activities? You can fill in the blank about what worldly activity that might be. You can come up with a long list of them, I'm sure. But we'll get a definition this morning. Look with me up on the screen at James 4.4. This is what James wrote. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. But the word in Greek that's used there for enemy is actually adversary. The same word that's used to describe Satan. So whoever is a friend with the world is hostile, is an adversary of God. What does that mean to be a friend of the world? Because we have a really delicate balance to walk. Look at this next piece of scripture from Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So on one hand, we're supposed to be gentle. But on the other hand, 
We're not supposed to tolerate any mixing with worldly activities. Let me give you a definition of worldliness. You'll see it up on the screen. Worldliness is any preoccupation with or interest in the temporal system of life that places anything perishable before that which is eternal. Not clear enough? Let's go to Scripture then. Look at the definition from Scripture. 1 John 2, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Where we're going this morning, for a world perspective, we will be accused of being judgmental. But from God's perspective, it's called declaring the truth. And declaring the truth only comes from one source, comes from here. And so we will be faithful to declare the truth because of this. It's my observation, it may be yours as well, especially if you grew up in the church, that today's church, and I don't mean New Hope, I mean the church in the United States, is becoming rampant with worldly behavior. Absolutely to the core. Churches, even entire denominations, have chased after things that 100 years ago would have been incomprehensible within the church of Jesus Christ. Three weeks ago, I open up the Lansing State Journal. I go home after church on Sunday afternoon, build a fire in the fireplace, sit in a chair to relax, open up the paper, and the journal has an article from the Associated Press. Episcopal Palean Church endorses second gay bishop. Now, as I read the article, I look at it and think, this is a very controversial article in our society because of those in the homosexual movement who have said, absolutely, we belong there. This is not inconsistent with the Bible. And yet, when I read Scripture and take it literally and look at what God said, I would have to say, are they crazy? What is going on? How has the church gotten to this place? And you can see why it becomes a very controversial subject. And it happens very slowly over a long period of time. Chuck Colson, who was an attorney, represented Richard Nixon in the White House years, going back to the times of Watergate, was interviewed. Chuck Colson, after they were caught in the behavior in which they brought crime into the White House, was interviewed for a book. This is after he became a believer in Jesus Christ. The question was asked to him of this, Chuck, how in the world did those of you who represent the office of the President of the United States, giving him legal counsel, find yourself in a place where you were carrying out criminal behavior. His response was this. Well, at first it started out as us just executing some of the things that we believed we needed to do to manage the Democratic Party. But eventually we found ourselves carrying out criminal activity to such a degree that we didn't even realize we were carrying out criminal activity until they caught us. And as attorneys, we stepped back and looked and said, how in the world did we get here? It happened over a very long period of time. And that's where we find this church at Pergamum today, 
carrying out activities that Jesus didn't consider controversial. He considered defiant to the word of God, and he's to deal with them. So look with me, if you will, if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have it open already, it's uh, uh, verse 12. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you're going to find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and those are there for your benefit. If you would like to take one of those with you today when you leave, you are welcome to. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. So this is the way it starts out in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Now Pergamum, what do we know about this? Pergamum is 20 miles inland from Smyrna, where we were just studying last week. All the way inland from the ocean on the side, and it's famous for one significant thing, is that it had a major university there. And this major university had a library attached to it. They had 200,000 volumes in this library. It was the world's second largest library, only second to the library in Alexandria, Egypt. So much so that it was so famous that when Mark Anthony came into power, he took all the volumes from the library in Pergamum and shipped them down to Cleopatra so that she would have them at the library in Alexandria. This library, having found itself robbed of its materials, decided that the only way to rebuild it and to gain their status again as the second world's largest library, they decided what they would do is go on a headhunting mission and try and hire a way from the librarian in Alexandria to come up and work for them in Pergamum. So the city fathers sent a letter down to the librarian in Alexandria offering him a job. When the leaders of Alexandria and the leaders of Egypt found out that he had been given this job offer, they absolutely put their foot down and refused to let him go, saying, you will not leave this country. And they had the authority to do it. And as a matter of fact, as a follow-up, as a retaliation to it, they cut off all the world's supply of papyrus. Egypt was the manufacturer of papyrus. So all of a sudden, all of Europe finds itself without any paper to write on. So out of necessity... Rome develops the art of making parchment, writing on leather, thin sheets of skin, animal skin, dried out. Think of the Declaration of Independence. It's written on a piece of leather called parchment. So this particular city, Pergamum, with this notoriety, becomes the world's leading manufacturer of parchment. They also are known for a couple of other things, and I'll tell you about a few of them in just a minute, but they had a claim to fame because of their contributions to medicine, because of their university, and because of their manufacturing ability. And so much so that the historian Pliny recognized them. You'll see this quote up on the screen. He said this about them, by far the most distinguished city in Asia. So we find an environment here that was very prosperous. But as you learned last week, where these temples were at, that they built in these various cities, It was really adverse to Christian life. They had a temple dedicated to Caesar. And in Smyrna, like you learned last week, people had to go to the temple dedicated to Caesar and once a year make an offering to him, burning some incense and say, Caesar is Lord. The individuals living in Pergamum, they had to do it on a weekly basis. So this is a really adverse environment to Christian life. So verse 12, we catch up again here. It says in verse 12, the one who has a sharp Two-edged sword says this. Now that makes us think of Revelation chapter 1. When Jesus was described, there was a definition for him of who he was. 
And one of the definitions was the one with a sharp two-edged sword. And so John repeats it here in verse 12. The one who has a sharp two-edged sword. I want to teach you two Greek words this morning. The first one I want you to say along with me when you see it up on the screen. Oxus is the word. Say it with me. Oxus. And it means rapid and sharp combined together. Literally, it's a swift sword. One that they move very quickly with. And here's the second word I want you to learn because you're going to hear it a lot today. Ramphaya. And this is the definition of a type of sword. So say that word with me. Ramphaya. And that's the way the Romans said it because it was a sword of war when they carried it. So the soldiers, when they had it, they said, you got your Ramphaya? I got my Ramphaya. My Ramphaya. Because it was a broad cutlass. It wasn't the kind that the soldiers carried down in their shoe when they went into a stabbing motion. It was a big, long, broad sword with which they could make a sweeping motion. And we know that God never wastes anything in the way of description in Scripture. So when he uses the word a sharp, two-edged ramphaya, there must be a reason for it. There are two purposes for a two-edged sword, and especially as it's related to Scripture. Here's the first one, that the word of God, the sharp, two-edged sword, exposes and judges our thoughts. It, it gives us a literal definition of what we should be doing and our actions. So look with me at Hebrews 4.12 on the screen and see this definition. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged ramphaya and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there's the first side of the two-edged sword. It can judge the intentions and thoughts of the heart. But what's the second one? The second one is a description of the power of the word of God. It's the other component. Look first on the screen at Ephesians 6.17. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So this ramphaya of the spirit is the word of God. That's what it's associated with. So this next verse I'm going to give you is a jump ahead in the book of Revelation. And it's to the time of the battle of which we call Armageddon, the last battle to end all battles on earth. And John gives a description of King Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, riding on a white horse. And he's carrying something with him. I want you to see this definition. Verse 11 comes from Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, meaning crowns. We learned about the crown of life last week. Many crowns are on his head. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now stop right there for just a minute. When have you ever seen an army going to battle wearing white linen clothing? Maybe in Star Wars. Okay, you got the Star Troopers, they're wearing white but I've never seen a military conquering team going to battle wearing white linen. Well, what's up with that? It must be 
that the armies of heaven are never even going to have to fight, even though they're following this one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Why is that? Did you catch his name in that verse? The word of God? Okay, pick it up in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, the word ramphaya is used again, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, this is the Jesus that we read about in Revelation. It's not the Jesus in the manger that the world celebrates today. We get all cranked up around Christmas about this baby in a manger, but the world has left him in the manger, and they forget he's returning as the one with the Ramphaya to carry out the fierce wrath of God. And so this sword that emanates from his mouth is the word of God, the power of the word. Think about the power of the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, John 1.1. He's speaking of Jesus at the beginning. What did Jesus do at the beginning? Let there be light. Let the waters spring forth from the earth. Let the plants spring forth, the word of God. Same God who says, Lazarus, come forth. Same word of God who says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. God creator, God life giver to man, God forgiver. And that same word of God returns at the end with the Ramphaya to bring about judgment upon the earth. This is the king that's being pictured here. So this is not a pleasant, positive perspective for this church. When the messenger comes to this church and says, the one who has the sharp, two-edged Ramphaya, that church is going to step back and say, this is the military God, and he has a warning for them. But first, he gives them a very gracious greeting. Look with me at verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know what it's like where you live. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Pergamum was a vacation town. Think Tampa Bay. Think Scottsdale, Arizona. People would go from great distance, great ends of the empire, to come to Pergamum. Why? Well, for one, it was a center of Caesar worship. But for another reason, they had exorbitant temples there. One of the temples that they had there, I want you to see, because it's called Satan's throne. Look with me up on the screen and take in this image that's in the Museum of Berlin. This was taken, literally, from Pergamum in the 1800s by archaeologists and reconstructed in the museum at Berlin. This was a temple dedicated to Zeus. And Zeus had within this temple a 40-foot-high throne with an 18-foot-high altar. And people who would make offerings to Zeus... God with a small g would come to this temple and bow down before him, but first they would go to Caesar's temple and bow down before Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, burn some incense, and make their way over to Zeus's temple. You 
begin to see where this definition comes from, Satan's throne. They had one other temple that's in this particular building. If you're in the medical profession, you might be familiar with this word. This definition is, this word is Esculapius, and this is a temple to the god of the snakes. Now, there's something very interesting in the detail of this temple. Because this was a medical town with a university where people came to study medicine, this temple that was built to the god of the snakes, Asculapius, was a place where people on their vacation would go to get healed. And so within this temple, there was a strict rule. You came during the day to make your offerings, and at the end of the day, you were to come back at sundown, and you were to stay in the temple because they gave you these instructions. Tonight, follower of Escapulus, when you come back, you are to lay on the temple floor, and you will spend your night on the floor of the temple. The temple guardians would release thousands of snakes into the temple. In order for the snakes to crawl over their bodies, they believed the snake would bring healing. Now, historians believe that the snake that you see on the medical symbol staff today, that image, comes from Asculapius. We don't know that for sure, but that's part of the root of it. Kind of creepy, huh? Not the medical profession. But this root, this temple that these people came to worship, So Jesus is saying, I'm aware where you live. I know where you dwell. And look how he follows it up in verse 13. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells, my witness, my faithful one. Tradition says that Antipas was locked inside a steel bowl or ox. And at some point, they lit a fire underneath it and allowed it to glow red. That's how they killed Christians. So in this particular town, this city had an authority from Caesar to be able to execute people. There weren't many cities that had that, and they used this authority to kill Antipas. So we have this word Jesus uses, my witness, my faithful one. The word is martus. Look at the definition for it. A martyr, a witness, or one who gives a record. So that's where the word martyr comes from, is martus. Jesus says he's a faithful martyr. So in in spite of these really intense circumstances, this church had remained true to God. In spite of everything pressing around upon them. Think of this. Temple to Caesar. Temple to Zeus, temple to the snakes. And you had to have the certificate of compliance in order to do your job, like we learned last week. And these people are being faithful to the word of God. But the believers, even though they had been true to God, under severe testing, had compromised their witness. How in the world did they do that? How did they have such resilience in the face of death, and yet they compromised their word? Their witness. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. What's the doctrine of Balaam? I'll give you an assignment. Later today, read Numbers. This is in the Old Testament. Read Numbers 22 through 25, and you'll see the story of Balaam and Balak and what he did. But here's a very condensed version. 
In Numbers 22 to 25, what you find is a man by the name of Balaam who had prophetic powers, and Balak tried to hire him to curse the children of Israel, and he refused to do it. But at the end of it, because they gave him enough money, what he did do is he taught Balak and the people of his kingdom how to seduce the children of Israel over a long period of time by offering them women by which they could commit fornication. And it corrupted Israel from within. And that's what he's talking about when he says, you hold the doctrine of Balaam. You're allowing people to seduce you to put a stumbling block in front of you. What is a stumbling block? Look at the definition up on the screen. The word is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandal from. And it's a trip stick. If you've ever seen a trap that's used by trappers for catching animals, you see a little metal plate in the center of the trap. That's where they place the bait or the meat. That's called a scandalon. It's the trip plate. And he's saying, they put this attraction in front of you, and you're committing acts of immorality. You're deciding to go this way and this way. And you can't have it both ways. You can't party all night. You can't visit the wrong websites. You can't go to the places you shouldn't be as a believer and have a witness and then say, well, I'll just clean up because I'm going to church on Sunday morning. Jesus is saying there's a clear delineation. Now, some in this church, very few apparently, it just says some in the church have said, what's wrong with it? I mean, come on. It's just burning a little incense on an altar to Caesar and you get your certificate of compliance. Come on, it's just going to the temple of Zeus. It's not a big deal. I mean, you're a Christian. That shouldn't bother you. They're trying to have it both ways. This compromise made them welcome in the guilds of the Romans, and it got them their certificate of compliances. But it put them at enmity with God. Today, we face the exact same temptations to commit spiritual adultery, to walk away from our first love, the church at Pergamon, as well as believers today, they make light of biblical doctrine and say, that theology, I mean, it's so old. How could that apply to us? God never changes. Who I was then is who I am now and who I will always be. It doesn't ever change. And so these people actually believed you could be immoral throughout the week as long as you cleaned up your life on Sunday morning and acted like a believer. But that's impossible. Because we read in James 4.4, 4, this is what Jesus said. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Jesus goes one step further in verse 15. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we met the Nicolaitans three weeks ago when we looked at the church at Ephesus. What was the deal with them? They were the ones who introduced the thinking that the pastor or the priest of the church was elevated above everyone else, that you had to only go see the priest to confess your sins, or that perhaps 
the pastor, the priest, should remain separate from the people. So when you see the great Orthodox churches over in Europe today, and you see very long sanctuaries, you see a stage greatly removed and elevated really high because the Nicolaitans had introduced this belief that the priest, the pastor, should be separate from the people. But Scripture says we're all priests. We're all holy in God's eyes. So they're accepting false teaching. Therefore, let's see how Jesus responds to this issue. Verse 16, Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the what? With the ramphaya of my mouth. Do compromises like this still go on today? Do you see them around you? Here's a label that we've given these kind of compromises. Lifestyle choices. It's just painted in a whole new picture. And lifestyle choices are remarkably inconsistent with the Word of God. And yet, because it's presented in media as being very acceptable, and we don't want to offend anyone, the church is told to be tolerant. When absolutely, Jesus says, tolerant, therefore, repent, or else. And what is the or else? I am coming to you quickly. We learned in the first study of Revelation, the very first week, that quickly means when it happens, it happens very quick in succession. You have seen churches that have lost their lampstand, that have had them turned out. That is part of the swiftness of God's word moving through. And it's directed, interestingly, to the whole church. And when you look at that sentence very closely, it says, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them. You find there the structure of a Hebrew idiom, which actually means when those two words are used together, it applies to everybody. So what he's saying is, I'm not just focusing on those who have walked away and are teaching false doctrine. I'm focusing on the entire church. Why? Because the church failed to deal with heresy. They became tolerant of this kind of teaching. They allowed some of them to be among them. So Jesus says, I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them. And he tells the entire congregation. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age in which tolerance is exalted in our congregation and among our society. And I don't mean here at New Hope, but I mean the church in general. It could almost be a temple of its own. People bow down to the tolerance factor all the time. I don't want to offend them. I'm sick and tired of the church taking a back seat when God's word very clearly says, they will be offended, but that's how they come to repentance. That's what's necessary to declare the truth. And here's a caution for us, lest we get on a bandwagon and start throwing stones. The caution comes from the writing in Timothy. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there's the balance. It's a very delicate balance, isn't it? To be in the world and be part of it, but to be separate from it and to see yourself as holy. Verse 17 wraps it up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Who's the overcomer? The nekao. We learned that word last week. Nekao from the word Nike, meaning one who subdues, one who gets the victory. So this overcomer must be somebody who gets a victory. What do they get the victory over? What do they accomplish? Well, he says, I'm going to give them hidden manna. That's kind of mysterious. Hidden manna. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. When the Ark of the Covenant existed and the children of Israel were instructed to take some of the manna that they'd been given and hide it inside the Ark of the Covenant as a permanent reminder to the entire nation that God was their source and their provider. But what's this white stone and a new name written on the stone? In Roman times, during the Olympic events, when the people, especially of Greece, competed, those who had the victory, the final winner of the race, at the end of the race, was handed a precious white stone, gleaming. And on that stone, they wrote their name, What was the purpose of that? At the end of the day, when the competitors celebrated their victory, they were invited to a victory banquet. They were not allowed to come into the banquet unless they had a white stone with their name on it. Jesus is saying, I'll give you the stone of victory. And your name, a name which no one knows, will be given to you. When you think in the Bible about those who had their name changed throughout Scripture. You see those who were captured and that they then belonged to a new ruler. It happened with Daniel. Daniel had his name changed because Nebuchadnezzar had authority over him. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not only the victor, but I'm going to give you a new name. You'll be known by a new identity. To those who overcome... So we've learned three weeks now, if we overcome, we're going to be given things. Here's the three things as a reminder. Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Revelation 2.11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And Revelation 2.17, to him who overcomes, I will give hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name. Why does all this stuff matter? We're approaching Revelation chapter 4, which is the beginning of future things, talking about the end of the world. And Jesus wants his church, which is so precious to him, to be in peak performance, to be able to stand before the world and say, this is what it looks like to follow after God. So if the church is dealt with first, Then Jesus will review future things. And that's what we find here in these letters to these churches. God ramping up the performance review. 
That's what we called it in the first week, a performance review. And that's what we see here. He's ramping it up, getting to the point and saying, I'm going to show you everything that's going to happen in the future. But first, let me deal with the church. So I'm going to leave you with a question this morning. This is a hard, contemplative question, I think especially for students in the room. If I was to go to school with you tomorrow, adults in here, if I was to go to work with you tomorrow, and we identified together some of your coworkers or your friends at school, and walked down the hallway and you said, there's one of my good friends and there's another one of my good friends, would I be able to take one of your friends or coworkers to a side room and talk to them and say, tell me about this person. I'll use my name. Tell me about Mark. Would I be able to talk with that person and have them say things about your nature and character? When I got to the Jesus question, could I say to them, is, is that person a Christian? Would they be able to identify you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Would they say, yeah, I can never get the guy to drink a drop. I mean, he won't go out and party with us. He's like a religious freak. Or would they say, I don't think so. I mean, I've never seen any example of that. That's how compromise works. We're one thing here in the church, but a different thing to our friends and coworkers. So ask yourself that question as you move through this week. Would that person know that I live for Jesus Christ? Can they identify me as belonging to him? It's really tough stuff. I understand that. But that's what's necessary out of this. It's self-evaluation. How about if you pray with me? Father, not only is this convicting, um, but this evaluation stuff about looking at our own lives and seeing the areas where we might have compromised causes me to recognize that you're also the God of forgiveness and you're very quick to restore us. I don't think that you came to this church with the intent of judging them at Pergamum as much as you came with the intent of restoring them, just like you want to restore us. So if we wander, Father, please be quick to pull us back. We recognize that this is a delicate balance you've asked us to walk, to be in the world but not be of the world, and to represent you well. So I ask for each man and woman in this room, each student, each child, that you give us the boldness to not compromise our faith in Jesus Christ, but to walk before you proudly and separate ourselves so that you would look on us and be proud of our walk. That's what we ask for this morning, Father, as we leave this room. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week.